0: Hello, and welcome to Inside Exams. I'm Craig Barton. I'm a maths teacher with 15 years of classroom experience. I'm pretty clued up on writing lesson plans and defining a decimal number, but there are still plenty of things about the exam process that remain a bit of a mystery. So, across this series, I'm going to be asking what you want to know from exam boards. Each week, I'll set off in search of pearls of wisdom from those creating exam papers. Today, I'm thinking about provisions for special needs students. I was at the theatre recently, and it struck me just how far the industry's come in making theatre accessible to as many different audiences as possible. There's been a real drive to reduce the physical barriers to attending shows. The spectacular drama is enhanced for those with sensory and communication disorders. Performances are captioned and audio described. There are more relaxed performances. The point is, theatres are going above and beyond to ensure everyone can share the value of having live communal experiences. So are these sorts of conversations being had by exam boards? What are they doing to make sure they're keeping up with the incredible improvements being made in the rest of society? I've certainly got my own questions here, but before I hit the road this week, I want to know what you want to know.
1: I'm Harriet Querelt, I'm an English teacher. A couple of years ago we had some papers modified for a visually impaired student but I do know that our SEM department would be very interested in knowing how else you can modify papers for students in case there's anything that we don't know about that you could provide for us. I, too,
0: have come across papers that have been enlarged for visually impaired students. But if industries like theatre are able to so cleverly cater to such a huge variety of needs, surely there are countless innovative arrangements our students could benefit from, too. Sue Barnbrook is AQA's Special Requirements Manager, and I'm off to her office to find out more. Okay Sue, first off, thank you so much for inviting us here into AQA HQ. It is a pleasure to be with you today. And I want to start by asking you about your job title. So what does that involve?
1: Well, we produce modified question papers for visually impaired students. And we also provide access arrangements, exam access arrangements. And they're things like extra time or scribes or readers for students who've got learning difficulties the range is infinite. Can we talk about that range? Can you just give us a, a sense, what kind of students are we talking about here? So for modified papers, it's it's only students with visual impairment. But for exam access arrangements, yeah, it's for people with severe learning disabilities. Maybe they've got cognitive processing difficulties and it takes them a long time for their thought processes to to go through. And so they might need extra time in their exams. Or for whatever reason, they have difficulty reading words on a paper.
0: Now, I've been doing a bit of research here, so Correct me if I'm wrong here, you've been in the job 17 years, is that right?
1: I have, yeah.
0: Wow. Can you give us a bit of a sense of how's the job changed and how's the provision for these students changed in that time?
1: Okay, so it's, ch- it's changed a lot in those 17 years. Modified question papers, the range of question papers that we provide for the visually impaired has increased, it's doubled. We provide four different types of modification. Those have developed because of need, because our customers have told us that that's what we need. And they use more of those sizes. The visually impaired students use more of those sizes in the classroom.
0: It's interesting that, isn't it? Because obviously the needs of the student themselves haven't changed over the 17 years. It's just... AQA have become more aware of it. Is is that it? We
1: have, yeah. We've become more aware because we, we go out to schools. We, we visit them. We have a really good network. The, all the exam boards visit schools. We have a good relationship with many of the senkos and the exams officers. And we get a lot of feedback from them. And the feedback that we were getting when we only provided two different modified enlarged types of paper was that actually there's a gap here. We need you to do a middle one and a, and a much bigger size, a 36 point. Now, the other thing is the size of a modified question paper. So for one standard question paper page, that equates for an 18-point paper. That's about one and a half times when you've enlarged it. So you're taking a 10-page paper you're making about 25 pages long. I mean, we take a lot of things into consideration when we make the standard papers, which over the last 17 years, we have gradually taken into consideration things like the use of colour for colour blind students. So in geography papers, if there was a map of the world and it was all, I picked one last year, it was all lovely salmon pink and it all blurred into one. Oh no. Yeah, so so we changed that and had different colours. So for for visually impaired students as well as colourblind, it was better. And we used like cross hatching instead of colours. Like lines. Oh yes. Lines, slanty slanty lines yes. on your map. Yes. As opposed to a colour to differentiate. So oh, you might use dots, yes, you might yes, use yes. slanty lines, you might use crosses, you might use something I else. See. Instead of colours.
0: To contrast between the to different contrast, yeah. and it. contrast
1: is the important thing. With any diagram modifying it for visually impaired contrast is everything.
0: I'll tell you what strikes me about this is that often what's good practice for let's say in this this case the visually impaired students that sounds to me like good practice for for all students so would sometimes you look at this pretty salmon colour map and think all right it looks nice but actually what are we trying to achieve here we want students to pick out the contrast between things so are there ever occasions where something you suggest for the modified papers actually leads to a change in the original papers? It
1: has so the use of colour in in maps for geography has changed and also for graphs in particularly maths but the use of graphs which are very what I would call busy so yes. you've got a lot of information on that graph and um, we've asked that they try and keep it simple what is it that you want the student to get from that graph can you just make it a little bit more simple on the eye visually simple can I talk about braille
0: just for a second because I can imagine how Braille would work for a sentence in, a, in an English exam or a passage or something like that. But again, how does it work for a diagram?
1: So Braille is different because within Braille, Braille, as you know, is is dots. I mean, don't assume so anything. Little... Don't assume anything. <laughs> here, Sue, come on. <laughs> so Braille, Braille is a code, right? And it's and the written word is turned into code. Okay. And so when we produce an exam paper in Braille and it has diagrams we will produce a, a tactile diagram. So many years ago, we did you, the brailing producers, to produce these tactile diagrams. It's all to do with swell and heat paper. And they oh, used to what put... What sort of swelling his... <laughs> so, so what you do is, is you, you have a piece of plastic, basically. Right. And you put shapes on the plastic to represent the shape that you want to be tactile. Right, OK. And sometimes we use things like macaroni and spaghetti. Oh, the... It can, it macaroni? can be Macaroni? Yep. As long as it creates the shape that you want, basically you put that together and then you put it through a heat source and it moulds... The plastic round the object that you've Flipping put there out. and then you've got a tactile diagram but i like i, I must say that things have moved on now we don't smoke so don't what, what don't you use that Penne so pasta
0: or something they use
1: they use properly made implements that raise the plastic wow. and it's all digital that is incredible and that that's so, yeah. just
0: the modified papers themselves but i assume as well that there's different kind of i don't, I don't know what the proper phrase is but provisions for students take in these papers. So again, we've got we've got scribes is something that springs to mind. But could you just give us a sense of again if you can take us through how things have changed over the course of Ukraine, what what extra provisions did they used to be and, and, and how have things developed over the last 17
1: years? Mm. We, ha- we have at the moment about 13 published exam access arrangements. We have extra time, readers, scribes, practical assistants. Now, practical assistance is one that has changed, and readers is one that's changed. Now, practical assistance, because of developments in medical technology, students have their own apparatus, for want of a better word, to do things for them. So a practical assistant can manipulate the equipment that they've got to access something, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does, it does. So that's changed, as technology has changed it was very limited before. We would prescribe particularly what a practical assistant could do. Right. Because we have to make sure that the integrity of the exam is not compromised, yeah, obviously. Because every student has to be tested against exactly the same criteria for that one national exam. Yes. They can't be doing a different paper. So that's one of the challenges. I suppose that's how the practical assistant has changed. A reader has changed. So now you can have text to speech software
0: oh, that will, okay. of course,
1: will read the text yes, back yes. for you. And lots of uh, Braille students use that as well. So for a reader, it's not, uh, we used to call it a human reader, but then we dropped that and it's just a reader. So a reader now means a person and an electronic reader. Oh, okay. Neither of which would give a student an advantage if that's what they needed. Oh, what are some
0: of these other ones?
1: So we've got supervised rest breaks, extra time, and within extra time, there's different types. You've got 25% extra time, 50%, 100%, and it goes up in those increments.
0: Ah, uh, OK. 100% the max?
1: Yes. yes. But sometimes students do need more, and that's that's a different type of reasonable adjustment that they have to ask us for. But if they ask us and then evidence of need is there, we're more than happy to grant that. Got it. Absolutely got it. fine.
0: Go on, Give us some more, I'm liking oh, this. Uh,
1: word processors now that's not technically an exam access arrangement because students don't have to apply for it, but that's something again that's changed over years. So, obviously, everybody's on their iPads and, mm. and gadgets nowadays, and it's normal way of working for many students, mm. and it can help a lot of students with learning difficulties. If a school can support their students using a word processor, we will grant it, right? And then they can submit the script in the normal way will market we believe that having a word process will not necessarily give that student an advantage over other students if that is their need
0: yes and that's the
1: important thing
0: I'm still thinking here w- there must be cases that come to you that don't quite fit and how much yeah. scope is there for you to cater to individual needs?
1: The golden rule is that although we want to enable students with disabilities to work independently, What we can't do is compromise the assessment objectives. Mm. That exam has to test the same thing.
0: If we move to a subject like English, where does kind of spelling come into play? Because that's obviously like Mm. a key part of English. But if I've got a scribe and I'm I'm saying a sentence, I might not have a clue how to spell half of these words or even how to do the grammar in these words. And yet the scribe is writing, hopefully, the correct spelling and the correct grammar and so on and so forth. How how does that work?
1: OK, so that's a good one, because if spelling... punctuation and grammar is actually being tested. Yes. The student has to and this is going to sound harsh. Go on. has to spell out each word. So the wow. scribe is under strict rules to actually write just what the student tells them. And as I say, if spelling, punctuation and grammar is part of what is being assessed, mm. the student must do this. They must describe, they must spell out each word and put you know punctuation into cr- grammar, new paragraph they must say. Wow. But we would expect a student who has learning difficulties or whatever the problem is... It's going to be their normal way of working. So right. they will be practised. You know, Before they sit their exam, we really would expect classroom practice to have been monitored so that this student is prepared for the exam. Yes. And you can get past papers and they can practise. It's not brand new when they when they sit down and on that exam. We all know what it's like with the exam yes. nerves. Yes. And, and they can sit down and it's what they're going to expect to do. And as long as they expect it then it tends to run relatively smoothly.
0: What kind of things would you say no to? What kind of requests do you just say, no, I'm sorry, we can't do that? And and, and why do you say no?
1: I hate to harp back on it, but we wouldn't do anything that obviously would compromise the assessment objectives. So if somebody said in a designing technology exam, my student can't draw right. because of their physical disability, perhaps, we couldn't have somebody draw for them mm. because that is what is being tested, mm. and it sounds harsh, but that is what we have to do. At the moment, geography (GCSE geography) part of our specification at the moment is that the student has to be able to read an ordnance survey map. Okay. Now, for Braille, what we do is we actually produce a tactile version of an ordnance survey map wow. with all the the contour all lines the and everything, wow. and all the symbols and everything like that. It is quite challenging. Yes, it is quite challenging but if somebody said well actually they don't they don't read braille and they can't read the modified large print version and therefore can they just not do that bit of the exam no i'm afraid we can't because that's what's being tested yes. and i know it's because of their disability but we still can't permit that because it's part of part of the exam it's part of the skill set that we expect from that exam
0: i'll tell you another concern I have with with the students being disadvantaged and that is if I've got a class of again let's take a level math students I can print them off loads of past papers or they can just get them off the internet and do loads of past papers loads of practice and so on but the students who need these modified papers to to get the same exam experience and, and, and the fairness they need loads of practice modified papers but I mean just take your example of the the ordnance survey in braille I mean where can they get those from so is, is this a problem
1: no it's not we we provide as long as the paper was 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 made and most of the papers are 99% of our, our standard papers are turned into either 18 points or 36 and braille right so we put all of our modified large print papers on our website yes and they can download those just like they do the standard paper. so that's that's easy Braille papers, again, they actually go direct to our Braille producers because we don't store them because Braille degrades quite quickly. You can't store Braille very easily because the little dots, the little perforated dots get crushed. We don't keep them. They get printed on demand. So what happens is the school will contact us and say, oh, have you got a braille paper for geography last year or two years ago? And we'll go, yeah, yeah, we have. We'll look it up, see who produced it, direct them to them, and then they will tell them the details. And then our braille producer will send them a braille copy direct so they can practice on it.
0: Now, with a lot of the the things that the awarding bodies do, there's an element of competition in it between them. Is that the case with this or is it a bit more collaborative than that?
1: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because we work as a team more. The awarding bodies, we meet annually and actually we have the Special Requirements Committee that meets regularly. But we all do special requirements. We're constantly emailing each other on the phone asking what you're going to do for this one. It's because you have one student, don't forget, will be sitting several exams with different awarding bodies. A school doesn't just go with one awarding body. And so we can't be sitting to be giving one access arrangement to one student if it's a borderline case Mm. then we'll be straight on the email or whatever saying oh i've got this student and and they've got this but they've got that are you going to allow it yes we are because and then we'll make sure that everybody's doing the same thing and that's really important
0: well i'll tell you what sue i could talk to you all day because this has blown my mind i didn't realize it sounds naive of me but just how much thought goes into this it's not just a case of selecting all the text banging it up a few font sizes and pressing print there's a little bit more to it than that and it's yeah the the amount of effort and thought that goes into this has just been absolutely incredible so thank you so much for inviting us to aqa today i've loved every minute of this
1: great thank you very much
0: Wow, what an education that was. I'll be honest, I had no idea quite how many different ways our students can be supported through exams. So I hope that answers your question, Harriet. It's brilliant that there's so much care in the exam hall. But how can we as teachers similarly be supporting our students throughout the year as well? I'm going to meet Mark Grimmett, one of Guildford County Schools maths teachers, to find out. So, Mark, first off, thank you so much for inviting us into your school today. Can I just start by asking if you could give a bit of context about the school itself and the students you teach?
2: I'm in uh, Guildford County School in the heart of Surrey. We've got about a thousand students at our school, all different abilities. Uh, It's a music specialist college.
0: Could you just give us a bit of an idea about some of the access arrangements and special arrangements that your students might require and why they might require them?
2: In our school, we've got, as I say, students with a range of abilities and access arrangements specifically when it comes to exams are really, really important. We may have students that require extra time, students that require scribes or readers, some that may need laptops and some that may require to just be in an extra room for anxiety reasons. Let's just talk about in the classroom itself, so not exam time, just in day-to-day teaching.
0: Is it a collaborative process between you, the teacher, and and the pupils as to trying to find out what the best learning environment is for them? And if it is, is it harder with younger students than it would be with older students?
2: I'd say that, you know, within the classroom, you know, it's never changing dynamic experience. The students there are, you know, bouncing off each other they are developing they are changing in lots of different ways so it's up to you as a teacher to maybe realise the best ways of working you know you might have smaller classes which are specifically support sets which we we have at our school and it's sometimes easier to focus your teaching towards certain ways of working whereas if you've got a class of 30 especially Mm. in a maths class oh yeah they might come in and maybe not liking the subject so it's engaging them (laughs) we get that with maths a fair bit don't (laughs) we yep it's a a difficult one (laughs) so you may get people not engaging with the actual subject but then you've got people that are engaged with the subject like the subject but can't access it. And it's it's trying different ways and different strategies to see what works best. Could you give us some examples of, of some of the, the kind of different techniques you've tried with students over the years? It's lovely when you've got a teaching assistant in the classroom. Mm. And usually a teaching assistant will be in there because a student has an EHCP, so an educational healthcare plan. Yes. Which is, you know, the government providing funding for someone to be specifically with the child for a certain number of hours. I sometimes will use them more effectively by asking them to work with other students that may have slight learning difficulties, so students with dyslexia or students that may have you know, hearing impairments, using them to focus on those students, so using the TAs to focus on those students, and me as the teacher to focus on the student with the EHCP. Oh, interesting.
0: So even though the TAs are assigned to one particular student, it's better use, you think, putting them with other students. And why why is that?
2: I feel that, you know, me as a teacher, I'm able to to focus my time and give that student some one-to-one time Mm. from from the teacher. And it allows the the TA to use their expertise as well. Usually they're in that class because they have expertise in the subject as well and it's really, really beneficial to have them give some one-to-one time to students that may not get my full attention all the time. You know, on top of that, it's, it's also really important, I think, to use the students themselves to the best of their ability. So I sometimes assign experts oh. within lessons. It doesn't have to be a top-set lesson. It could yes. be middle set or a support set, and give some students the opportunity to be the expert in that lesson. And they're able to go around and help students if they want to. So it gives a bit of independence, provides students with a bit of resilience, and it also allows me to focus my time and attention specifically on some of the SEM students. You sound like you could give me a bit of an helping hand here. So imagine I'm your TA. You can be
0: you. Thanks. Um, <laughs> and we're going into a lesson. What kind of direction would you give me? What, what kind of things would you be saying to me? What would you be wanting me to do in the lesson to help support you and
2: your students? So sometimes at the start of my lessons, they'll you know they come up to me and they'll be very willing to be like, actually, you know, what, what, what do you want mm. me to do? I may sit some students in different places, do a bit of hot seating in some of our lessons when we've got fewer students and that allows me to maybe put some other students surrounding a TA so seat the TA in the middle and have, you know, maybe three or four students that may require their attention. They also ask what sort of things we're doing in that lesson, and I may have printed off some notes, especially in maths with, with drawing graphs, mm. and when we've got lots of diagrams, I may print off some of those notes in larger form, or at least it gives us some of the students some scaffolding. And it also gives the TA some sort of direction in the lesson, so they kind of know what's coming. So they can prepare the students therewith. I
0: think you hit the nail on the head there because the mistake I've made in the past is it's it's essentially a surprise to the TA what's going to happen in the lesson. They're they're as shocked as the kids of what direction I'm going. But you're a lot more forward thinking than I am. You're informing the TA in advance what's going to happen so they can prepare. Would that be fair?
2: To be fair, you know it's difficult sometimes. Mm. Um, school's always changing. Yeah. The lessons are always changing. You might even be changing what you're going to do at the start of that Absolutely. lesson up until it actually starts. But it's keeping that dialogue throughout the lesson as well. So if you do go off-piece or you think actually students aren't getting a certain concept, it's keeping that dialogue going with the TAs and in and out of the classroom as well. When I started teaching there was always a thing that was teachers versus TAs and there wasn't that positivity and you know the school we're at at the moment we've worked really really hard on working with the TAs. We did do a scheme where they kind of came up with a a bit of a contract with teacher TA contract and the expectations that the teacher may have and also the expectations that the TA may have of the teacher. As the years have gone on we haven't needed to do that but it's quite a nice way of as I say formalizing that relationship. Now I can already
0: tell I'm going to learn loads here Mark. I'm I'm taking notes as we Speak. Next thing I want to talk about is this passport idea that you have. Can you just tell us a little bit about them?
2: So, it's something that our school have, have trialled this year is having a, a pupil passport for mm. each SEN student. Now, when we classify an SEN student, it's not always someone with an educational healthcare plan. It could be a student that has dyslexia. It could be a student that has ADHD. So they have some sort of special need. The pupil passport itself is a really, really useful tool that our SCN department have put together. And it starts off with the students talking through their best ways of learning and how useful certain ways of learning are for them. And in conjunction with parental communication okay. and also teaching assistance at school, and they're uh, additional to that, the teachers themselves, We've put together a passport that each student with SCN has and they're able to kind of use that information and give that to all teachers, make that available to all teachers, pastoral staff and support staff as a way of informing us on students' needs. Can I just ask what kind of questions are in the passport? What kind of information do you collect? So the sort of information we might collect are what they enjoy, sort of subjects that they Mm. enjoy. Uh, It might be things that they enjoy outside of school Mm. because it's one thing that's really, really important is getting that common ground with the student. And it might be that their hobbies, what they they enjoy doing. And that might be a way of, you know, later on, if you really need to connect with them, you know, really, really important bit of information. There may be some past history in terms of anything that they have done in primary school. Mm. Anything that has happened to them, maybe uh, it might be a traumatic experience, emotional well-being. Uh, mental health those sorts of questions are on there and it also is a way of the parents and carers to give their voice on how best they think their children learn at school and also anything from home that might be a bit of a concern or might be of help for the, the teachers as well. And is this done at the start of the year? Usually it will be done at the start of the year and it's a working document and I think that's the really mm. important thing that it's you get a lot of things at school which come out at the start of the year which have all the SEN data and it's quite static, you know, it's printed, it's given to you and that sticks with you for the rest of the year but things can change and people can be put onto the SEN register throughout the year. The year so I think it's really important that it's a working document and at each point in the year that you know they have an annual review at the end of the year but there are different points that we as school do so we have um, SEN coffee mornings oh, okay. um, which invite all of the SEN parents in to school to meet with the SEN staff and that is also another way of for us to update any of our records by having those conversations with the parents. Do you have any favourite examples of students you've taught in the past who are labelled as SEN but have really thrived? So uh, a couple of students in my year 10 class at the moment who came in that were, were in quite a small support set. So we started off with seven students, which is, you know, as a teacher, a lovely number of students. Yeah. But their progress was so, so slow. You know, they, they came in not liking maths, mm. be it because of the sort of teacher they've had or their prior experiences, even at primary school. They've just it's just got that connotation that they don't like maths. Yes. But I think finding that common ground with those students, some of them had attendance issues. And it was just getting them in mm. to class, playing. So we play bingo quite a lot at the start of every lesson, getting that routine in. I play as well. So it's it's completely really competitive, yep. gets them engaged and also having that common ground and knowing what they do outside of school. So another thing that I do is the Duke of Edinburgh's award. Yes. Seeing them thrive outside of school. Some of them are getting in contact with different schools going in and helping out voluntary work. And just seeing them grow as as students is really, really nice to see. And that feeds straight back into their work. So you're able to see what they do outside of school, talk about what skills they may have got from going, one of them goes every Wednesday to a play group and helps mm-hmm. out. And just seeing that time commitment and showing them that you've dedicated an hour of your time and there's commitment there. And then saying, well, actually, why can't you dedicate that hour to you know, an exam paper, let's say. And <laughs> at the start of it, they they, they they hated the idea of every, you know once a week doing an exam paper. But they've realised the benefits of doing it and realised actually that's helping me, helping them for, you know, in the world of work. And they've been able to thrive and their progress has got better and better and better. And they've been able to go home and feel proud. I think it's really important to use parents as a way of helping that process. Keeping that communication with them from the start of the year. I think it's important just to pick up the phone sometimes Mm. to those SEM parents Mm. and just engaging in any sort of conversation, not in a negative way, not in a positive way, just to see how they are and just to introduce yourself. So then later on in the year, when it comes down to those exam papers, you're able to go, actually, well, so-and-so has been doing really, really well, but he didn't, didn't get his exam paper in. And the parents are on board and they know exactly what you're about and see the importance of it. And then the students, I think, then become more motivated to want to do well. Can we talk now a little bit about exams?
0: Are there any particular kind of stresses or concerns that your SEN students have that perhaps your non-SEN students wouldn't have or wouldn't have to the same kind of degree?
2: When it comes to exams, it's really, really important to give the SEN students time and give them you know strategies in which to, to deal with the stresses and anxieties it's really important to let them know well in advance about when exams are coming up and we put together a revision guide that actually goes out to all students mm-hmm. but we we make a point of sitting down with specific SEN students and going through these are the revision techniques for this subject. Oh. These are the expectations, and it's a school-wide thing that we now do, even in year seven. That's fascinating. So everybody gets this
0: guide. Every student gets it, but you'll just put in a bit of extra one-to-one support with the with the S. Yeah. Can you just give us an example of some of the things that are in the guide?
2: Uh, so in the guide, there it goes through exactly what exams they're going to be having, Mm -hmm. when they're going to be having them, times in the day, what the expectations are with revision. And so each subject then gives, you know, a one-pager on these are the sorts of things to revise and also gives them places to go resources-wise, so any logins that they need to then further their revision plan. It also gives them best ways to revise as well. So, you know, our head boy and our head girl give their own advice from a Year 13 point of view on ways in which they learn best and they revise best. I think it's those revision guides, in conjunction with revision assemblies, it gets students ready for the exams, but having that extra one-to-one time with them, it might be, subject teacher or it might be uh, one of the TAs or someone from the SEN department sitting down with those SEN students and putting together a a revision timetable for them. Obviously there's big advantages of labelling students with the correct
0: SEN because it means they get the right access arrangements, potentially extra time and so on. Are there any disadvantages of labelling a child as being an SEN child? I think some
2: students automatically get an anxiety Mm. attached to it or, uh, you know, they they might think that they're different but in a a negative connotation. So I, I think that if they're known to be part of the SCN department or they go to the SCN department, there's potential that you know, there is that stigma attached. And, you know, you could, you do get some students that get a bit jokey about it, like, you know, I'm in support set, you know, yes. I'm, I'm special or whatever. But I, I always say that every student or every teacher is a teacher of SEN. And you're going with a positive growth mindset as a way of, you know, I think we're, we're all individuals. We've all got our own mm. needs. Some people might be really, really good at maths, but you might not necessarily think that they might, not be very good at English. Mm. What's, you know, when you think of SEN students, they're not going to have these special needs in every sort of subject. So it's really, really important to say we've all got needs. We all need to find the best way of working. Final question from me, Mark.
0: Obviously, we know teachers are incredibly busy. We've so much on just just normally, but it's it's an additional workload, isn't it? Adequately catering for our SEN students. So. How do you find the time to do this? And if you've got teachers listening who have got SEN students who want to do some of these incredible things you're suggesting, how can they do it without it eating up even more of their time, if that makes sense?
2: I think it's important to say that teachers don't have a lot of time. Mm. And when you think of how can I adapt my lessons for SEN students... You end up thinking of, oh, I need to change this or I need to add this or I need to make this resource, etc. And a lot of the time it comes down to what happens in the lesson. Now, having resources available and sharing those with the department is really, really important because then that breaks down the time. The sort of schemings of work that you go through each teacher will, will be going through that same scheme of work and may need certain resources that you have that you've changed or adapted for SEN students. So I think collaboration within the department is really, really important. It's also important, I think, as I say, within the class... If you've got behavioural issues or coming up with different strategies that you can have at the back of your mind, might be changing the seating plans, might be having a wonder wall within the lesson and saying, you know, you've done really, really well, put a sticker on the wall and that goes up They get a prize at the end of it. And having that motivation, it doesn't take a lot of time, but the benefits of the student's motivation and engagement in the lesson, you know, are really, really important. Also things like having timeout cards. Once you've produced those, once some of your SCN students may be able to use them, you know, that time element isn't, you know, a big issue.
0: Well, i tell you what, Mark, I have learned flipping loads there, and I know I'm going to be a better teacher as a result. So thank you so much for your time today and for inviting us into your school. Thank you. I'm really impressed by Mark's desire to get to know each student individually, to never assume what they might need. I definitely want to think about implementing this passport idea, It seems like allowing for open dialogue between students, parents, teachers and SEM departments is really crucial. And I'll endeavour to make the most out of my TAs. If you fancy yourself as a bit of a special requirements manager like Sue, head to the podcast show notes. You'll find some interesting resources that will show you what goes into making question papers more accessible. Over the coming episodes, I'll be chatting to more exam writers, markers and pioneering teachers to get the answers to your queries. So if you want to swat up ahead of exam season, make sure you rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Until next time, goodbye.